Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Together, they will be like warriors in battle, trampling their enemy into the mud of the streets. They will fight because the Lord is with them, and they will put the enemy horsemen to shame. Zechariah 10, 5. Hello, everybody. Uh, this is your producer, Zach. I'm usually the one who is behind the scenes. I edit the show and put the music in and all that good stuff. But today, uh, Professor Paul is out. So I'm just here to give you the quick little preamble of uh, he is not here at the moment. He's on the road. He will be back and there will be another regular episode next week. However, uh, today we're going to be doing a little filler. Don't worry, I'm not going to be talking your off. A classic on another show we do is the Sermon on War. The Sermon on War was a, well, sermon that was attended by Professor Paul and his constituents, and we got the re- the audio recording of that sermon, and we are here to share with you today. Do you have to be a coward to be a Christian? Does the Bible command Christians to be pacifists, to be subservient, to be non-confrontational? There, have been, there has been a direct and deliberate effort underway for decades to convince those of faith that God, that to be true to God, it must be passive and subservient. Is that true? Is that the case? We'll talk about that. So go ahead and hope you enjoy the show today. Again, uh, next week we'll be back with a standard, normal episode. So look forward to that. But for now, I uh, hope you enjoy this. The Sermon on War. Well, good morning, everybody. Nice to see you. The topic before us today, I want to talk to you about war. Not the most pleasant topic in the world, but a very uh, contemporary one. In fact, I was reading recently a variety of newspaper headlines, and they all seem to have the theme of war in them. Here are some. Bracing for war. Conflict with Iraq. To war or not to war? What the polls say. Are we going to war? Give war a chance. Putin warns Bush against war. The United States seeks help in war with Iraq. Much talk about the possibility of the next war our country might find itself deeply embroiled in. If you're a thinking Christian, I hope you're thinking about the issue of war. Should you support it? Should you not? 
I was in a restaurant the other day and a young couple came in. I recognized them. Uh, The young man was raised in this church. He serves as a soldier in the army now. He was home on leave. The girl was his uh, fiance. We sat together and chatted about a variety of things. And in the course of the conversation, he said to me, Stuart, what is Sagemont Church's position on whether or not we should go to war against Iraq? Well, we don't have a position statement. Perhaps we should. Do you think we should? If you think we should have a statement with reference to the possibility of war with Iraq, what do you think the distinctively Christian position ought to be? In fact, let me broaden it just a little bit. What do you, as a thinking Christian, think our posture ought to be with reference to war in a general sense? If you were to be called upon to actively participate in war, what would your decision be? If you were to be called upon to vote, to participate in an indirect kind of a way, what do you think your position as, a, as an astute and, I hope, literate student of the Bible, what do you think the Bible would suggest you do? What should be your perspective with reference to war? Just to prime the pump just a little bit, I would like for you to turn to your neighbor or anybody nearby and have a little discussion for a few minutes, and, and I'll try to come up with a message when you do that. I would like for you to discuss what you think the distinctive Christian position with reference to war ought to be. So enjoy your conversation for just the next few moments. All right, that's probably enough time. I heard some of you talking about what you're going to get at Luby's. That was not the assignment. (laughs) Stick to the assignment. Do you know, folks, there is not one distinctive Christian position with reference to war. In fact, well-intentioned Christians have uh, have, uh, discerned over time, three prevalent positions with reference to war. And in the next few moments, I would like to acquaint you with all three, and you can pick the one that you think suits you best. The first is called activism. And those who hold to this position of activism, this is what their thinking is like. They would say, it is clear as you study the Bible that God has ordained government. That's an indisputable fact. You can look at passages like Romans 13, for instance, to find that to be the case. So God has ordained government. Therefore, the thinking goes, if I am wanting to be a good Christian citizen, it is my obligation to participate in any war declared by the government since God is the one who has ordained the government. So that's the activist position. And so the the rallying cry for people who hold to this perspective is something like, my country, right or wrong? Now that sounds like a very virtuous statement, but if you think about it, it's a very dangerous statement. I mean, it sounds awfully patriotic, but a blind patriotism is probably a dangerous kind of a thing. For instance, what happens if the government you are blindly supportive of requires something of you contrary to divine law? What if civil law comes to be in conflict with divine law? I hope your decision will be to disobey civil law in favor of conformity with divine law. Now, I've got to tell you, there's biblical precedent for this. There are many accounts in the Bible. For instance, perhaps you're familiar with this story. Exodus chapter 1. Pharaoh, the equivalent of the prime minister, the president of the day, issues a mandate to Hebrew midwives whose task it was to deliver Hebrew babies. Pharaoh, the king, said to them, the next time you go to deliver Hebrew male children, I want you to kill them. 
That's the order of the state. I hope without giving it much thought, the Hebrew midwives came to the conclusion that they must, before God, disobey that mandate. And so they practiced very active civil disobedience. They decided, because God said you cannot take life in this fashion, they would defer to his judgment. And not only did God not rebuke them for disobeying the government, he rewarded them. If you examine the text, you will see that. Well, there's another case I recall in Daniel chapter 3. There were these three guys, you've heard of them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I had a friend years ago who used to refer to them as uh, your shack, my shack, and a bungalow. But that's not true, actually. It was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And uh, the big shot leader, the representative of the government, was a guy named Nebuchadnezzar. And he told these three guys, this is the mandate, this is the edict, this is the law. You must offer worship to this statue which I have erected probably in his own image. They disobeyed him. They said, no, we'll worship only the true God of the Bible. Later on in the same book, Daniel chapter 6, Daniel receives a mandate from Darius. Darius says to him, uh, Daniel, you're like a praying sort of a guy. You pray all the time, but you cannot pray to anyone but me from this day forward. That's the law of the land. And Daniel, in essence, said to the king, King, hang it on your beak. He said, no way. I'm not going to comply. I'm going to continue doing that which has been my fashion three times a day. I will bow the knee to the one true God. I'm not going to pray to you, O King Darius. Now, just in case you think this thing is a peculiarly Old Testament phenomenon, let me acquaint you with passages in the book of Acts. That's the New Testament for those of you who are unfamiliar. Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 5. There's a couple characters running around. They're called apostles. They represent none other than Jesus Christ. Two of them are Peter and John. The law of the land was initiated on their behalf. And the law said to them, Peter and John, from this day forward, we order you. This is a governmental edict. It has the authority of the state behind it. We order you to cease and desist any preaching in the name of Jesus. You're just stirring things up. And Peter and John, do you remember their response? They said, listen, uh, you know, all you governors and mayors and everything like that, with all due respect, we must obey God rather than man. So that sums up the position. And to me, that's the death knell to the activist position. The activist position says, my government, right or wrong. The biblical position says, wait a second. It is true that God has ordained all government, but it is not true that God has ordained all government policies. And if a government policy is contrary to the scriptures, what are you going to do? I hope you respectfully disobey the government. That's what Peter and John did. So activism, I think, is not a good biblical position. Here's the second prevalent position with reference to war amongst Christians. It's called pacifism. And here's the thinking of pacifists. It's pretty easy. God commands us not to take life. Thou shalt not kill. Therefore, war is evil. How could you, a Christian, a well-intentioned Christian, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, how could you participate in any war? All war is evil. Didn't Jesus teach us to turn the other cheek, put away the sword, forgive your enemies, love those who hurt you? Didn't Jesus teach that? Therefore, the pacifist would say, any participation in war of any kind, even a duly declared war, is absolutely inappropriate for a Christian. That's the pacifist position. Here's the third one. It's called selectivism. 
Actually, that's not my term. I don't think that's actually a word. It was a term advanced by a fellow named Norman Geisler. I borrow it from him. Selectivism. Now, if activism says that the position for the Christian is to participate in all duly declared wars by its government, and if the position of pacifism is to say that the Christian must not participate in any wars declared by the government, then the position of selectivism says the Christian should participate in some wars declared by the government because some wars are known as just wars. And so another name for selectivism is the just war position. Interestingly, the just war position has been advanced through the centuries by Christians. You've heard of Augustine? And Ambrose, they advanced the just war position. It was refined centuries later by Thomas Aquinas. If there is a prevalent, a predominant Christian position, one that has affected the church throughout its history, it's this one, selectivism or the just war position. Sounds good and reasonable, but we have a problem. If you opt for the third position, the just war position, you're left with a kind of decision-making dilemma. How could little old you ever discern what is a just war and what is not a just war? Are there any criteria by which you can make an intelligent decision? The answer is yes. Good, godly, and intelligent people throughout history have advanced various principles of decision-making so that you could discern the character of a declared war. Is it just or is it unjust? Let me offer to you seven of them briefly. Here's the first. Just cause. There must be just cause. So just cause includes things like self-defense, the protection of innocent people, and punishment for wrongdoing. It is not a just cause to go to war on the basis of unprovoked aggression. I think you could agree. A war of exploitation is not a just cause war. Here's a second principle. Just intention. Just intention. That has to do with the motivation for the declared war. The motivation, the intent of it, must be moral. Therefore, motives like revenge and conquest, ethnic cleansing, whatever that is, and economic gain are not legitimate means for going to war. Here's a third principle, last resort. Self-explanatory. The war in question must be the absolutely last resort. Other means of resolution must be utilized before war. Things like diplomatic approaches, economic sanctions. Only after those have been implemented and tried and found to fail can a just war ever be declared. Fourth principle, formal declaration. That means a war must be initiated by a formal declaration of a duly constituted Body of authorities authorized by the government. What that means is individuals cannot declare war. So this Hatfield and McCoy thing, you know, we we can't do that. Individuals can't declare war. Mercenaries cannot declare war. Militias cannot declare war. Terrorist organizations cannot declare war. Only governments can declare war. Then the fifth criteria is called limited objectives. Limited objectives. The objective of war is simple. It is to accomplish the mission 
and then to attain peace as quickly as possible. Once peace has been attained, you're done. Go home. So it is an illegitimate objective to decide on the complete destruction of a country's political or economic institutions. That is an unacceptable objective. And then another principle is called proportionate means, which simply means you cannot impose greater harm on the enemy than is necessary. All you want to do is defeat the enemy. You cannot use weaponry that is disproportionately connected to the objective of defeating the enemy and attaining peace as quickly as possible. So the amount of force used must be limited to what is needed in order to win. That's it. Or as someone has put it, you do not have to burn down the entire barn in order to roast the pig. Just roast the pig. Leave the barn alone. And then the final principle is called non-combatant immunity. Non-combatant immunity. That means in a war situation, if you're a participant, you have to do whatever you can to protect the well-being of non-combatants like civilians, casualties, and prisoners of war. Okay. That's the just war position or selectivism. I like it. I think it fits. Except we got a, a few problems. They're called passages of Scripture. They kind of get in the way. Because there's a number of passages of Scripture which on the surface seem to rule out selectivism as a legitimate option. Let's examine them. For instance, Matthew chapter 5, verse 44 simply says, love your enemies. How do you square loving people with bombing people to death? Now, though it's true that this commandment places an obligation on Christians, there are other commandments that also place an obligation on Christians to love one another and their neighbors. Can you tell me how, in any stretch of the imagination, you could be said to be someone who's intent on loving your neighbor if you sit idly by while your neighbor is being victimized by a cruel aggressor? That is not an act of love. So this love thing has to be kept in balance. It's fascinating to me that the pacifists seem to be issuing a rallying cry for us as Christians to show love for the aggressor, but what about love for the victim of the aggressor? It's not an act of love to refuse to restrain evil when it is in your power to restrain evil. You ever hear of a guy named Francis Schaeffer, late Christian philosopher? He said, to refuse to do what I can for those under the power of oppression is nothing less than a failure of Christian love. I agree with him. I have relatives who survived Nazi Germany. Uh, they were scheduled to be fed to the gas chambers. And they were rescued one day before that fate bef befell them. They were rescued by American infantrymen in World War II. American black infantrymen. Why do I say black? Because in those days, many units were still segregated. Shame on us. But I got to tell you one thing. My relatives, they still have uh, numbers imprinted on their wrists. It was like a brand that the Nazis used. Take away your name and identity. You become a non-person. You got a number. They still have the numbers. And they were about to be fed into the ovens and they were rescued. And I got to tell you, you'd be hard-pressed to persuade them that those black American inf infantrymen did not love them. They felt enveloped by love. 
that people who they didn't even know came from thousand miles away to intervene between them and a cruel and evil aggressor and save their lives. That is an act of Christian love. To have it within your power to intervene when someone is being put upon by a cruel aggressor and to refuse to do it, I have a hard time understanding how that fits into the love equation. Now, I want to share something with you that's a little controversial. If you don't like this, then, then don't take it. I'm, I'm working on this. I, I really could be missing the point. The commandment under discussion says, love your enemies, does it not? But it doesn't say love God's enemies, does it? It doesn't say love your country's enemies. It says love your enemies. To me, that means if you have a personal adversary, someone who's offended and insulted you, don't go to war over it. Forgive and love that person. But I'm not sure you have the authority to love those who hate God. I'm not sure you have the authority to befriend those who hate your country. I'm not sure. Now, maybe I'm missing the point. I'm sure you will correct me. It's just something to think about. Okay, but forget about that first, maybe. What about Romans 12, 18? You know this one. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Be at peace with all men. But folks, the operative words, I know you'll agree, are the first two. If possible. You know, I don't want to like burst your balloon or ruin things to you. But if you look around, you'll find out like this is not an ideal world. I hate to do this to you before Christmas. (laughs) But there's like bad people running around all over. You live with them. It's not an ideal world. In an ideal world, there'd be no need for... Listen, in an ideal world, there would be no need for law enforcement authorities. Listen, in an ideal world. But since it's not an ideal world, and because there's sin in us, the sin in us has distorted individual relationships, leading to the necessity of law enforcement. And the sin in us has distorted international relationships in my opinion, leading to the necessity of armies. That's the way it is. I will tell you this, all war is tragic. But I also have to tell you, not all war is avoidable in a less than ideal world. We, we don't live in an ideal world. But what about a verse like Matthew 5, 9, which says, blessed are the peacemakers. Well, read it carefully. It doesn't say blessed are the pacifists, does it? It says, blessed are those who make peace. Do you know what it takes to make peace? Sometimes war. I attended a funeral recently. Many of you did as well. Maureen Schneider's father passed away. He served in World War II at great personal sacrifice. Brother Chuck did a magnificent service. It was perhaps the most glorious tribute to a person I've ever heard in my life. And it was very fitting. He is a hero. Because of what Maureen Schneider's dad and many others have done, look at us. We sit here free and at peace. I don't fear taking a public stand in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have come blatantly to worship him. Have you not today? You came to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Look, in total freedom. Do you know what it costs to obtain that for us? So God says, I put a special blessing on those who are willing to pay the price to make peace. Blessed are the peace makers. It doesn't say, blessed are the peace lovers, does it? Peace lovers 
or people who say peace at any cost. Those are dangerous people. They really are. Peace at any cost is a very dangerous sentiment. In fact, the rallying for peace at any cost today might be the most clear modern-day equivalent of idol worship our country has. Peace, 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 people cry out. I've got to tell you something. Peace sometimes can be more harmful to your health than war. Let me illustrate. 1975, war ended in Cambodia. Peace ensued. Do you know what happened during the peace? Pol Pot, leader of the Khmer Rouge Marxist regime, slaughtered three million of his fellow Cambodians. Forty percent of the entire Cambodian population. That's in time of peace. That's what the peaceniks are opting for. Folks, there's peace in the graveyards, too. Is that the kind of peace you want? A higher virtue than peace is truth and justice. Not just peace. Do you know in our century, more people have been tortured, maimed, and massacred during times of peace than in times of war? I want peace. So do you. But not at any cost. No way. I'd rather have truth and justice. But what about the sixth commandment? Exodus 20, verse 13. Simple. Thou shalt not kill. Do you realize that that is a very unfortunate translation? It's not accurate. Do you realize it actually reads, thou shalt not murder? What is murder? Murder is the unauthorized taking of life. Abortion is murder. It's unauthorized. Euthanasia is murder. It is unauthorized. War is not murder because it is not unauthorized. How do I know that? The same God who issued the commandment commanded Israel to slaughter many, many people. Look, God told Israel to destroy the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hevites, and the Jebusites. You can find this, Deuteronomy 7. When the Lord your God shall deliver them, all these above-named people, when he shall deliver them before you, and you shall defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. How could it be that the same God who said, thou shalt not kill, tells them to kill? It's because he didn't say, thou shalt not kill. He said, thou shalt not murder. There's a difference. Murder is the unauthorized taking of life. And in the Bible, God authorized the taking of life, whether you like it or not, in many, many cases. In fact, God himself authorized war for various reasons, like as a means of restraining evil, to judge wickedness, to purge sin, and even to purify his own people. So the sixth commandment prohibits only unauthorized taking of life, murder, not killing. But what about Matthew 5, verse 39, which says, But I say to you, don't resist him who is evil. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. Are you familiar with that one? I need some help here. Billy, I'm sorry. But I need you to come. And you can't refuse because all these people are expecting you to come up here. No, no, no. Billy, not you. That Billy right there. I want that Billy. No, I want, I want, I want. Okay, both of you come up here. Come on. Come on up here. It'll be like the Billy Bob guys. Come on up here. Oh, that's good. 
Thank you for being so willing to participate. No, no. I want you to stand right here, Billy. You don't tell him what you're going to do. I got the microphone. Stay right here. Now, look, I want to ask you guys a question. Do you think, statistically, most people are right-handed or left-handed? Right-handed. Are both you guys right-handed? Me too. So three out of three here. Most Christians are right-handed. Did you know that? Okay. So, so... Think about the text. Whoever hits you on the right cheek, you know, turn to him the other. So I'm a right-handed guy. Now, could you guys point out to the folks your right cheek? Just put it right there. Okay, there's right there. Good. Good. They're, they're a little reluctant. And, and, and this without practice. It's amazing. Okay, so that's the right cheek. Now, I'm a right-handed guy. This is my right hand. You designated your right cheek. If I'm going to hit you on your right cheek, how do I do it? No, no not left hand. Because I'm right-handed. It has to be the back of the hand. So if I'm going to hit the billy guys, that I, I, I got to go, look, 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 look. Boom, 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 boom. I got to go like this. Yeah, I got to go. Like that. <laughs> okay, good. Thank you. Please be seated. No, wait, wait. I want to show you. Look, look, look. If I did that to these guys, would that be a serious physical injury? No. It would be a humiliating and embarrassing personal insult. If I wanted to inflict serious physical harm... Here's how I do it. Clenched fist to the nose. Clenched fist. This sounds good. To the nose. Look. Can you understand what the scripture is saying? The scripture is saying this. If someone were to do something like that to you, it would be publicly debasing and humiliating. It would be quite embarrassing, that kind of offense and personal insult. But do not retaliate. Let him hit you on the other cheek too. If it's a personal insult, but that is not addressed to a national government on the verge of war. It's just saying to the individual Christian, don't go to war over a personal insult. Look what Jesus went through for you. Take it and get down the road. Thank you, guys. You may go to sleep. I mean, be seated. (laughs) Folks, listen. This says if someone personally offends you, let him offend you even some more. It's better than personally retaliating. But please don't find in that commandment something like this. If Iraq attacks Kuwait, then United States government, you must let them attack Saudi Arabia as well. That verse is not saying that. Don't make it say what it's not saying. It's only saying if you as an individual Christian are offended by someone else, don't retaliate. Forgive. Get down the road. It's not worth it. That's what it's saying. But what about Matthew 26, verse 52, in which Jesus himself said, put your sword back into its place. For all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Hmm. If you examine the context, I think you will find out that what the Lord Jesus is saying there is simple. You are not to spread the gospel through the sword. Later in Luke chapter 22, the same Lord who said this tells them, listen here, guys, you should have a sword. And if you don't have a sword, you should sell your robe in order to have the financial wherewithal to purchase a sword. Is the Lord saying contradictory things? Not at all. You know what he's saying? You can get a sword for self-defense, but you cannot get a sword to advance the kingdom of God. Why not? 
Because the advancement of the kingdom of God is based on spiritual weaponry and resources, not on force, imposition of power and coercion. Not at all. So all the Lord is saying there is, for personal defense, you can carry a weapon. To advance the gospel, no way. So folks, I think you know by now, I don't hold to the pacifism position. I think it's weak as you look to the scriptures. In fact, let me tell you a story I read in the scriptures. There's a guy named John the Baptizer. You know him? John the Baptist? He's preaching. He's, he's a little weird. He's odd. He's unusual. He's getting a crowd. I mean, locusts and wild honey and all. He's strange. But he's preaching a message. to be. It's a message of change of lifestyle. He's saying, repent, change your ways. Why? Well, someone's coming much, much better than me. I'm not, even, I'm not much worthy of the one who's coming. He's the Messiah. He's the King. His name is Jesus. Make a way. Get ready. Make a way, a roadway in your life to your heart. Get rid of stuff that's in the way. Change. John the Baptist is preaching that message of repentance to many different people groups, one of which were soldiers. So the soldiers come up to him in Luke chapter 3. I'm not making this up. The soldiers, after hearing his preaching, say to John the Baptist, what about us? What shall we do? The soldiers are saying, we've heard your preaching. It has affected us. It's cut us to the quick. We want to change. What specifically should we do to make ourselves ready for the Lord Jesus? Tell us. Now, folks, I've got to tell you something. If pacifism was the biblical position, that is a grand and glorious opportunity given to John the Baptist to tell these soldiers this. This is what you shall do, soldiers. Go a wall. Move to Canada. Apply for conscientious objector status. Lay down your arms. Take off your uniform. Quit! But he doesn't tell them that. Interestingly, here's what he tells them. Do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. You know what he's saying? He didn't tell them to stop being soldiers. He said you should start being righteous soldiers. That's no contradiction in terms. I spent time as a chaplain in the army trying to do that very thing. That was my number one, every chaplain. This is our number one function right there, to help our soldiers be effective and righteous. Meaning, you don't shoot babies, you don't rape women, you don't pillage, you don't burn down villages, you don't take what's not yours. You fight to win. And when we win, we go home. But you fight righteously. If pacifism was the biblical position, then John the Baptist missed out on a grand opportunity to say so. He didn't. He said, get back to work, only be righteous when you do it. That's what he said. Now, folks, I find it very fascinating. Let me just depart from the scriptures for a second and share an opinion, an observation. I find it fascinating that the anti-war activists and protesters of the day are very selective with reference to where they protest. I'll tell you where they protest. They protest in uh, London, England, and they protest in uh, Washington, D.C. That's in the United States of America, in case you don't know. And they protest in places like Jerusalem. That's in Israel. Interesting. But they do not protest in places like Havana, Cuba. I don't recall the last anti-government march that took place in Baghdad, Iraq. 
or in Tehran, Iran, or in Syria, or in Saudi Arabia? Isn't it ironic to you that the anti-war protesters are given the freedom to do that very thing in the countries that sent their soldiers into harm's way to obtain that freedom? And I support the freedom. But it's ironic. It doesn't even exist in other places in the world. It costs us dearly to have the freedoms we have today. Dearly, dearly, dearly. Now, folks, don't you be thinking for one minute that I like war. I spent 17 years in and around the military, two branches of service, Army and Air Force, in different capacities. I saw stuff, very unpleasant stuff. There's nothing glorious about it. In fact, uh, uh, yesterday, as I was preparing for this message, uh, I prayed this. It came to mind. I asked the Lord to keep my three sons from ever having to participate in war. There's nothing glorious about it. There's nothing good about it. Not at all. But that being said, folks, not all war is evil. Some is authorized. As devastating as it is, and I'm aware of how devastating war is. For instance, do you know that since 3600 B.C., that's a long time ago, since 3600 B.C. until now, our world has known only 292 years of peace. During that period of time, there have been 14,351 wars in which 3.64 billion people have been killed. An astounding toll. The value of the property destroyed in war, see if you can fathom this, is equal to a golden belt around the entire world, 97.2 miles wide and 33 feet thick. What a waste of resources. Global military expenditure today is now running well over $1 million per minute. One out of every five living scientists in the world today is occupied with military research and development. What a waste of brain power and resources. What a waste. I'm aware of that. So will it ever change? Yeah, but not through the United Nations, I can tell you that. Not through our peace negotiators, I can tell you that. Will there ever come to be a time when there won't be any more? Oh, absolutely. When Jesus Christ initiates the last war against evil. Yes, then there will be war. So what we read about in the Bible, about creatures like the lion and the lamb getting along. What? We read in the Bible about people beating their weaponry into agricultural implements. That will happen when the Lord Jesus Christ comes and initiates the last battle, but not before. Can you imagine a reality in existence free from war? Let me answer that for you. No, you cannot. It's never been in your experience. So let me help you imagine it through the eyes of one called John who wrote the book of Revelation. Even he saw it as a vision. Here's his vision. He says in Revelation 19, And I saw heaven opened. You know, there are certain truths and realities that have to be opened by God or you and I can't peer into it. John was able to. Heaven was opened. He peered into that reality. What did he see? He said, behold, a white horse 
And he who sat upon it, can you imagine who it is who's sitting on the white horse? Think about it. He who sat upon it is called faithful and true. Who else could you say is perfectly faithful and true but the Lord Jesus? John saw a vision of the Lord Jesus seated on a white horse. And it says, and in righteousness he judges and, get this, wages war. The Jesus I read about in the Bible is not a pacifist. He judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire. Fascinating to me how, how, uh, how lackadaisical some people are with the Lord Jesus. This tells me his eyes are like a flame of fire. And upon his head are many diadems, crowns, And he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. Why? Because a name gives you power. A name is a way of sort of controlling someone. A name gives you an upper hand over someone whose name you know. And nobody has an upper hand over Jesus. He has all these diadems. He's seated on the white horse. He's Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He's God Most High. Nobody knows this private personal name. And he is clothed with a robe. What kind of a robe? Well, it's dipped in blood. Whose blood? Well, that's the blood of Christians martyred for the faith. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven. Did you see that? The armies which are... It doesn't say the pacifists which are in heaven. I suppose one or two will squeak by. But it says the armies. It doesn't say the navies which are in heaven. It says the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, it's white and clean. You see, that's a, that's a symbol of purity. They were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a weapon, it's a sharp sword, so that with it he may do what? Coddle people? No. With it he may smite the nations. With a sharp sword that comes from his mouth, he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. Here it is, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. That's Jesus. See, that's the same one who came first on a donkey, right? But forget the donkey. The next time, that's a white horse. That's a symbol of victory and triumph. He's the one who came first, did he not? As a lamb. If you forget the lamb, the next time he'll come as the lion of Judah. Will there be a time when wars will cease? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. When Jesus comes to make war against all evil, lay it to rest. Yeah, that'll put an end to war. Now, look, we've been speaking for quite some time about war between nations. Forget about it for a second. Do you know there's a war of a different kind? It's kind of an internal conflict. It's in every life here, yours and mine. It's an internal war. Do you know you have an enemy? You have a foe? So do I. It's called sin. I prove to you that it's your enemy. I can prove to you. It's easy. You find yourself doing things you don't want to do. You find yourself saying things you don't want to say. You find yourself thinking things you wish you weren't thinking. Who's doing that? That's your enemy. That's sin in you. It's a daily battle. Now, I'm going to tell you something. You're going to lose. You can't win. 
You can't defeat that enemy. Why? The enemy is too powerful. The enemy's desire is to choke out the life within you and to destroy you. That enemy you carry around in the members of your body, that enemy will defeat you. Now, when I was in the military, this is not a brilliant strategy. It's just common sense. When you're outnumbered, you look for allies. That's what you do. You find people who will team up with you against a common foe. I just want to suggest to you an ally you need. His name is Jesus Christ. Listen to me. Jesus Christ is the ally you need to defeat the enemy that resides within you that you cannot defeat. You need an ally. You're outnumbered. You're going under. You'll not make it. Now, I've got to tell you something about this ally, Jesus. If you don't take him as your ally now, you will face him as your adversary later. I don't mean to scare anyone. I'm just teaching the scriptures. I just read about him in this text to you. His eyes are like a flame of fire. What comes out of his mouth? Sweet, mamby, pamby, flower child words? No. Words to smite you. Words represent the wrath and fierce anger of his father. You either take Jesus as your ally or he will be your adversary. I got to tell you, I'd rather know him as my ally and friend now than as my judge later. Don't be so foolish. Don't think you're in control. You're not. You're going under. Your enemy is destroying you. And you need outside help. And Jesus says, I've provided it. How did he do that? Which is a little thing called the cross. On the cross, he defeated the last enemy, death, for you. How did he do it? By dying. Period? No, 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 no. By dying, comma, and then rising from the dead. You know what that means? He goes first, by faith, I go after him from death to life. I really, really wish you would take Jesus as your ally today. Do you know why we have wars on a national scale? It's because we're being defeated by the war on a personal scale. If Saddam Hussein was a Christian committed to the Lord instead of a Muslim, we wouldn't have a problem with Iraq. If Yasser Arafat was a Christian committed to the Lord instead of a Muslim, we wouldn't have a problem in the Middle East. If Ariel Sharon, the prime minister of Israel, was a committed Christian instead of a traditional Jew, we wouldn't have a problem in the Middle East. So before we jump and try to solve all of these national conflicts... What do you have to offer if you're not at peace with the creator of the world? And you can't be at peace apart from the ally, the peacemaker, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 